0: morning. It's good to be back with you. I've been out of the pulpit for a couple weeks, which has been good, but it's a blessing to be back with you. And I am very thankful for uh, Dustin and for Brian, who were able to fill the pulpit while I was gone. It is a real blessing for a church to have many godly men who can handle the word rightly. And uh, this is one of the reasons that I love the exhortation times that we do here is because it gives us as a body an opportunity to hear from other people. Just like Eric did a wonderful job this morning, it is such a blessing to be able to hear not just from me or not just from one person, but for us to gain the wisdom and the experience and the grace of God through these other men. So isn't that a blessing for us? I am just so thankful for that. So this morning, we're going to continue in the Psalms. We're going to look at Psalm 31, and then next week uh, is our annual meeting in the evening. Now, every summer that we've come up to the annual meeting, I've paused from the Psalms and preached a message on something that I think will be helpful for us as we enter into the next year of ministry. So our fiscal year ends here in July 31st, and so the first year we were together, I preached through our mission statement. Some of you were here for that and gave the biblical pinnings, the undergirding for every word in that statement. That we exist to gather, grow, and send disciples who delight in Jesus. Every word there has Bible under it. And so we gave the explanation for why we exist that way. Last year we talked about gospel doctrine and gospel culture. How that the truth that we know from the word of God cannot stay or ought not to stay in our mind on the objective level but needs to work itself out in the way that we live together inside of the church. So next Sunday when we come back together and we start our fourth year of ministry together, I'm going to preach on many of the one another commands of the New Testament. Because if we understand that God has not just saved us to be individual Christians living our little individual lives, but rather he has saved us into a body where there's many members and all the members are equipped by the grace of God to serve and care and love and grow together, that understanding will transform a church. And so as we enter into the next season of ministry, I want to encourage us, to be connected to the Word of God and be connected to one another. So that's what we're going to do next Sunday, and I hope you can be back for that. But today, as I said, we're going to look at Psalm 31. This psalm now is very similar to what we have seen previously this summer. There is a lot of similar language of declarations of dependence on God, making requests, asking God to vindicate David, asking him to work on his behalf. This is very similar language. In some ways, we could say there's not really anything new in this psalm compared to what we have seen over the past two months or so. And I know that's probably not the right way to say that there's nothing new, but you know what I mean. This is all very familiar as we look at Psalm 31 this morning. So, as I'm going through the week and I'm thinking about this and praying about this, I say, okay, why, why is it like this? As we read the Psalms, there is so much overlap. Do you notice that? There is so much repeated language. There is so much that David and the other psalmists write that is just seems to be repetition after repetition after repetition. Why is that? Why not just write one chapter? that says everything, or, or 10 chapters, why is the Psalms 150 chapters long, each of those in some way or another having overlap with other areas of the book? Why, why do it that way? I thought of a few reasons, and I want to share a couple as we begin, but I also want you to think about that. So don't just take Jacob's word for this. I want you to think, why do you think that there is so much repeat language in the Psalms? Well, here's my two ideas. I think that when we see similar language in the Psalms, specifically with David, so David wrote many, he didn't write all the Psalms, you know that, right? David did not author all of the Psalms in the book. Moses wrote some, Korah, Asaph, there's a lot of contributors to the book of Psalms, but when we consider David's writing especially, we see that there is a great level of consistency in his prayers, okay? So, Most of the Psalms are in the form of prayer. They are being offered and directed right to God. And we, of course, gain instruction and insight from observing those prayers. But much of this language is directed to God. So, as we see the language repeated, as we see themes repeated, what it tells us is that regardless of the situation David finds himself in, I mean, it could be physical danger It could be because of his own sin. It could be because he's lonely. Whatever the case is, he comes to God with similar language. It shows us that he has confidence that no matter what he's going through, he can cry out to God. He can come to God and bear his soul and reveal his heart knowing that God hears him and will answer him. And I think that's really encouraging for us too. That we don't have to come up with like, wildly drastic and different language every time we pray. So bring your heart to God. We're going to talk about that when we close. Second thing, I think for the repetition here, is that God knows his people. And he knows that it is really easy for us to forget what he has told us. So not only do we see consistency in David's life as he prays to God over and over and brings his requests, his his praise, his worship, his, his adoration to God, we see consistency there. But also, with God instructing his people, we see that he is reminding us of the truth over and over again because he knows that we forget. And God doesn't want you to forget his word. He does not want you to have it go in one ear and out the other, and you just leave this place and forget everything that you've heard. So he repeats and repeats and repeats the instruction for his people. And that is not meaningless. That is an act of God's grace. As he cares for us and shepherds us and reminds us of our inadequacy and our forgetfulness, we turn to the Psalms and see it over and over and over again. And I'm saying that's on purpose. That's on purpose. So we're coming this morning to this Psalm and I just want to encourage you, Don't tune this out this morning. There's a lot of similar language. You've heard this before, but you need to hear it again, just like I do. Okay. So don't let the the seed of the word of God be snatched away by the birds of familiarity. Okay. Don't let that old crow come down and take that seed is what I'm saying. Listen, this is for you this morning. Yes, it's similar. Yes, you've heard this before, but let's pray together. That God would give us a fresh set of eyes to see his word. That we would gain insight and understanding for God through this text. So don't tune it out. I, none of you would tune out a sermon, I know that. But I'm just saying, you know, just in case there happened to be someone. Okay, Let's learn together this morning from the word. So I'm going to break this up into three sections. And we'll just read each section as we go through. So I'm going to invite you to pray with me. And let's ask that God would do this. That he would keep us from sliding into the familiarity and really engage with this text this morning. So would you bow your heads and let's pray together. Father in heaven, we come before you now thankful because of all that you have done through Christ. God, we stand now on the, on the edge of starting a new year of ministry. And as we look back, we see how you have provided that we are now in this facility permanently by your grace and the overwhelming demonstrations of your goodness that we have seen in this church over the past year. And all we can say is thank you. Thank you, God, for doing these things. Thank you for working your goodness for your people. And so now we come once again to your word this morning and we see David confess that you are his refuge and his strength, and he prays for help, and he brings his needs to you, and all these things that we have seen many times before, and yet, God, this morning, in your providence, you have brought us to this text. And I have a high level of confidence that this is exactly what we need to hear this morning. There are no accidents where your word is concerned, so this is for us today. And I pray that you would do what you have promised to do, to open the eyes of our hearts, that you would open our understanding, that as we read together and study together, would you encourage our hearts? Would you help us to see this psalm, not as just the same old news we've heard every other time. Help us to see this as an encouragement, to press in closer to you, to model our prayers after what we see in the scripture. God, do this work We are helpless unless you come and teach us. And so by your spirit and through your word, come and do this work, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you haven't, would you open your Bibles to Psalm 31? And we're going to read the first section here, verses 1 through 8. And I want you to keep an eye out here for the strength of God, the firmness of God, And then David's gladness because of that. So let's look at verse 1 through 8 in our first section. Psalm 31. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. And for your namesake, you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net that they have hidden for me, for you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction. You have known my distress of my soul. And you have not delivered me into the hand of my enemy. You have set my feet on a broad place. Now at times when we read the language here in the Psalms, and I think in all of the Bible in some ways, it can be hard for us to connect it to our experience now. Okay, and I have in mind here some of the words that we just read in that first section. Words like stronghold, uh, fortress, refuge, refuge we we know what those words mean i think especially theologically but we don't really use those probably in our vernacular very commonly david's experience and what's motivating his writing is that he actually has been in situations where he needed a literal physical place of refuge whether it be king saul or the philistines or people in his own court, he was pursued regularly and needed places of refuge and of safety. So for him to compare God to a strong tower or to a refuge or a place of rest made perfect sense. But I don't think that any of us, probably this week, were in a situation where we were seeking out a good structure to house us from a pursuit, right? That probably was not our experience. But we should not think that this is irrelevant language. Okay, Because all of us, all of us go somewhere when we are in need, right? All of us run somewhere when you have difficulty, frustration, depression, whatever the case may be, you go somewhere. Dane Ortland uh, wrote a devotional on the Psalms called In the Lord I Take Refuge. It's a great, great devotional. And his devotional on this chapter said something super interesting. And he used the example of uh, Michael Jordan uh, when he was inducted into the NBA Hall of Fame. If you guys don't know, Michael Jordan was a really famous sports ball player and he's pretty commonly known in the culture. But in 2009, he's drafted or he's inducted into the Hall of Fame and he gives his acceptance speech and this is how he closes it. And I quote this here. The game of basketball has been everything to me. It's been my refuge my place I've always gone when I needed to find comfort and peace. So what's he saying? He's saying that by inadvertently using the language of Psalm 31, when he needed something stable, when he needed something he could depend upon, that he knew would be there for him, he turned to his sport. Now he had the right idea of going somewhere when he needed it, but he had the wrong object, right? You and I, if you are a child of God, just along with David, we have something far better than basketball to turn to. We have something far stronger to place our hope in, a place that will not move. David is employing these terms, refuge, stronghold, fortress, rock, All of these things should remind us of characteristics of God. He is using metaphors to help us understand that if you place your hope in God, if he is the place that you turn to when your world is shaken or when you have problems or whatever, he will be there. A fortress of refuge is somewhere you go when you need stability. So David employs this language to help us remember that God is our refuge and our strength. And because of this, so David declares the strength of God, the firmness of God, and as a result of that, and because of his confidence, he can say what he says in verse 5. Right? Look at verse 5. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. So David knows from experience that God will rescue him from his enemies. You read through Second Samuel, Second Kings, you get all these accounts of when God rescued David physically, okay? provided safety for him, defeated his enemies. But more than that, David is saying here that not only does he trust in God to take care of his physical, literal body and to protect him from his enemies, but his spirit, his soul, his heart will be guarded by God. That's what it means. Into your hand I commit my spirit, meaning that he releases the control of his entire life to God. Body and soul are in the hands of God. We're going to see this later. This is the level of confidence that David has in the Lord. Now, there was another man in redemptive history who placed his confidence in God, who uttered these same words as he committed himself body and spirit to God as he hung on the cross, paying the penalty for our sin. And that was Jesus Christ. Luke 23 tells us these are the last words Jesus spoke before he died. And I'm going to touch on this as we close. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it right now. But just hear this. If these words were enough for David to express his need to God and his his satisfaction in God and his trust in God, his confidence, if they were enough for Jesus, if out of all the passages Jesus could have used, he reaches back and gets Psalm 31, it's enough for you. If it's good for David and it's good for Jesus, we can use this language with a high level of confidence. What we're seeing in this psalm, though, is not just that we use the exact words but that we are seeing the ways, the patterns in which we bring our emotions and our requests and our feeling to God. That's why I've titled the sermon, The Pattern for Biblical Prayer. It's not only that we say verbatim, word for word, what's in the text. That's right and good. But more than that, notice how the language is used. Notice the situations that prompt this kind of language. And use that as you develop your own patterns and habits in prayer to the Lord. So let's keep moving. Second section is verses 9 through 18. So let's read these together Psalm 31, starting in verse 9. Be gracious to me, Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also, for my life is spent with sorrow. And my years was sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors, and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I have been forgotten like one who is dead. I have become like a broken vessel, for I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side as they scheme together against me and they plot to take my life. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face shine upon your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. O Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go down silently to Sheol. Let lying lips be mute, which speak insolently against the righteous in pride and contempt. Now you can hear the change here, right? The first eight verses were declarative, saying what David knew to be true about God and his confidence in him. Here we see in verses 9 through 13 especially these expressions of David's sorrow specifically sorrow for two things. One, because of his own sin, his iniquity, and also because of the persecution of his enemies. So let's look at both of those to help us understand this section a little bit more. Look at verse 10. For my life is spent with sorrow, my years with sighing, my strength fails because of my iniquity. So notice that David is not lamenting in a general sense the fact that all of the world is subjected to sin. He's not looking in a general kind of broad way and saying, oh, all of life is hard, I know, and all of the world is subjected to futility and, and therefore my life is just hard. That's true in a sense, right? We all know that. But here he is speaking in very specific, personal ways. He says he has sorrow because of his sin, his iniquity, This is personal, Okay. This gets at something that we don't talk about maybe that often, but I think we should, and that is the connection between what goes on in in spiritual realm and what goes on in our physical life. There is a very strong connection. Those are not two separate things. We are embodied spirits. We have a body and we have our spiritual life, and they affect one another tremendously. That's what David is getting at. This is not hypothetical. When he says my strength fails because of my iniquity, the word is physical. His his literal energy, his strength, his stamina is affected because of his iniquity. The effect of the fall, I hope you know this because it's gonna help you know how to pray and how to deal with these things. Sin is not some disconnected, far out there reality that we read Genesis 3 and go, well, boy, that's a bummer, and I don't know why this is happening. They're connected. That's what David is getting at here, the connection between his spiritual struggle, his sin, and the way that that affects his physical existence. The point of verse 10 is that sin has weakened David, as it weakens all of us. Jim Hamilton says this, Sin produces death. And on the way to the dust, it robs us of our physical strength, our emotional stability, our spiritual power, and our logical clarity. Sin destroys us. And that's what David's lamenting in verse 10. He is physically weary from dealing with his own sin. The constant battle for joy... The fight against temptation, the guilt that comes when you fail, all of those things wear on you. You know this, right? You experience this. Whether you know that's what's happening or not, this is wearing on us. You've heard how, oh, stress can really make you tired and wear you out. That's true. This is the same thing. There is a kind of wearing down that happens because of our sin. But it's not just the internal things that are draining David here. There are also external things. He says that he has sorrow because of his enemies. In verses 11 to 13, he describes the isolation that he feels, the the reproach that he feels, and the rejection that he experiences because of all the outside pressure, the people chasing him, the people that want to kill him, the whispers and the accusations of his enemies. So when David is in this situation... When he is beaten down, physically tired, worn out, you ever get to the point where you're just like, you know what, I'm done. <laughs> I just cannot keep fighting against this and working, to, I just, I need respite. I need, I need a break. You ever get like that? Good, I'm the only one, okay. So when David is beaten down by these things and that's where he's at, this, this is very, very clear language, what does he do? When he has internal turmoil, fighting, struggle, effect, when he has it kind of crushing him in from the outside, what does he do? Verse 14. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hands. This is so significant because David does not Turn inward to himself. He does not say, okay, I got all this stuff going on. I got sin, I got enemies, I got illness, I've got my kid who wants to take me off the throne and all these things going on. I need to figure this out. What does he say? I trust in the Lord. I say, you are my God. My days, my times are in your hands. He turns away from himself. And this is what we need to look at and pattern our lives after. Not that we have to do exactly what David did. But notice how he responds to these things. He responds by looking outside of himself, looking outside to God and saying and declaring, I trust in you. I trust in you. (coughs) Excuse me. It's far too easy for us to look at our own life And to look at our circumstances, to look at our problems, to look at our relationships, our our kids, our spouse, our work, whatever it is, and just immediately try to fix everything. You've got to get your hands in there and figure out, okay, how how can I do this? How can I fix it? You can't, maybe. (laughs) Maybe what you need to do is turn away from yourself, to turn away from your own strength, your self-reliance, and say, God, I trust in you. You are the one I trust in. When David says, My times are in your hands, he is declaring that his life, times is just another word for his, his, his existence, his days. And he is saying, Every one of my days is under the sovereign direction and providence of God. That is what gives him this high level of confidence. And here's where we need to notice it, when, when he says this, that my days are in your hands, my times are in your hands, what he is saying and what I am telling you right now is that there is nothing you can do to extend your life longer than God has ordained. It's one half. The other half of that is there is nothing you can do to shorten the number of days that God has given you. I am all about taking care of your body. Obviously. That was a joke. (laughs) We should be responsible with what God gives us. But hear me. You will not exercise your way into one minute longer than God has ordained for you. And there is nothing that you can do to abbreviate your life prematurely before God has finished with you. Do you know what a comfort that is? Do you know the kind of confidence that should be in our hearts knowing that our times are in God's hands? What would it look like if all of us in this church believed that verse? I mean, really believed it. Is God calling you to do something hard? Something uncomfortable? Something painful? Something risky? You can't change his plan for you. He will not, he will not let you mess up his plan for your life. I've been, uh, Tiff and I have both been just super frustrated the past couple weeks trying to deal with this health insurance uh, issue. uh, Getting down to the wire here of like, I need refills on the medications that keep me going and things aren't lining up. They're, They're not covering, there's delays everywhere. So what if, just worst case scenario here, we all have a worst case scenario, what if insurance doesn't cover, for some reason I don't get the insulin or the anti-rejection meds or whatever, and my body shuts down and I die? Will that have changed God's plan for me? Will that have changed the number of days that he has ordained for me? No. You need to know that. You need to know that your times are in his hands. I'm not trying to be morbid or whatever. I'm just saying this is the biblical reality. All of our days are held by God. So have confidence. You can't mess it up. (laughs) You cannot change what God has ordained for you. And I just want you to hear that as a hope and as an encouragement. And as a strength. And I want to hold you accountable to this way of living and I want you to hold me accountable to this way of living. It is not natural for me to say, I trust the Lord, come what may. It is natural for me to say, oh my word, what can I do to fix this? I don't want to live like that. I don't think you do either. So, can we do that? Can we hold each other accountable to say, I trust the Lord. Bring it on. Whatever God has for us, he knows and he will lead us through it. Now let's look at this last section, starting in verse 19 through the end of the chapter. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. In the cover of your presence you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord, For he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me. When I was in a besieged city, I had said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight. But you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait on the Lord. In verse 19, <clears throat> when David talks about the abundant goodness of God, what is he talking to? What is he referring about? Is this just kind of a, well, we know that God is good in a general sense, and so we're going to talk about. No, I think there's specific things in this passage that demonstrate to us <clears throat> the kind of goodness of God that David is talking about. So let me give you three quick examples. First, God demonstrates his goodness by working for his people. Look at verse 19. How abundant is your goodness. So the whole thing's talking about goodness, right? Which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you. Isn't that great? That God... It's not like he has this huge storehouse of goodness but he's unwilling to part with any of it. He's going to hold it back for himself. It's not like he knows how to be good but he refuses to act on that knowledge for the good of his people. He is ready, willing, and able to work goodness for his people. And when we combine this truth with the fact that God is all-powerful, meaning there's nothing he can't do, To know that that God is working goodness for his people, for those who fear him, is a tremendous encouragement. God is not working against you if you are his child. He is not working things for your bad or for your failure. He is working goodness for those who fear him. So amazing. Also... We see God's goodness in the fact that he delivers his people. In verses 21 and 22, David is recounting a time when he is surrounded and cut off. He's in a besieged city. And this isn't just a metaphor. If you read 1 Samuel 23, you find out that David is in this city. He went there to flee from Saul. He thinks he can take refuge there. And the people betray him. And they're going to turn him back over to Saul. So he's, he's stuck. He can't go anywhere. He's closed off. And he alludes to this when he says that he cried out to the Lord, but it was like he was cut off from his sight. Right? That's what he was feeling there. But God, in his goodness, delivered him. This is one of the ways that God demonstrates his goodness, that he delivers his people. Lastly, the goodness of the Lord is seen in his justice. Look at verse 23. Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. In order for God to be good, he has to be just. You know that? No one is going to believe in the goodness of a God who could care less about wickedness or evil. He can't be good. Look what he's allowing to have happen. And this is a pretty common objection when people talk about the goodness or the love or the care of God. But it has to be both. He perfectly balances his goodness and his justice so that there can be no claim that stands against him regarding injustice. He preserves the faithful but abundantly repays those who have it coming according to his law. That is justice. So those are just three ways that God demonstrates his goodness and that's what prompts David to say in verse 19, oh how abundant is your goodness. So that's the psalm and we skipped a lot and I just encourage you to go back and and read this again. There are so many good truths here but I want to close by sharing just a few examples of how this psalm has been used through redemptive history and how that should encourage us to use it as well, okay? So I'm just gonna share just three examples. So David uses it here, Psalm 31, he uses this language. Again, in Psalm 71, it's almost verbatim, the first three or four verses of that psalm. But then as we move on, we see Jonah, you know, who Jonah was a prophet of God, sent to the people to preach a message of the gospel, and he says, nope, I don't want to. So what happens? (laughs) Chomp, goes in the big fish. In Jonah chapter 2, while he's in the belly of this great fish, he cries out to God. And he borrows language from Psalm 31. It's very close. Read read Jonah chapter 2. You're going to find out all about this. He is, you talk about being in a besieged city. He can't go anywhere, right? He is feeling many of the same things that David felt, and he cries out to God using this language. Jeremiah, another prophet of God, in Jeremiah chapter 20 or 23, I don't remember which one, uses this language as he hears the whisperings of the people around him and and danger on every side and all this stuff. He borrows the language of Psalm 31 to cry out to God to make his request known. And probably most familiar to us then would be Jesus. As he hangs on the cross... Bearing all of the weight of the sins of his people, and in an expression of confidence and the hope that he had that God was able to do what he had promised to do, he commits his spirit to God using the language of Psalm 31. Now, here's the reason I cite these examples. Sometimes when we pray, we get the idea in our head that we have to come up with something new, something novel. We have to really class it up, especially if we're praying with other people. Some of us tend to revert back to King James language when we're praying because we think it sounds better or or more syllables or whatever. Jesus talked about this when he's indicting the religious leaders and he says, they think they're going to be heard because of their many words. But you know what? You don't have to come up with something novel. You don't have to come up with something new. Follow the pattern of Scripture and just express your heart to God. You remember the beginning of last year, we gave out that Don Whitney book, Praying the Bible? And a lot of you picked that up and it's a really helpful guide to just get in the habit of reading God's word back to him. God loves to hear his word prayed back to him from his people. So I just want to encourage us as we look at this psalm as a pattern of our prayer. In other words, not just exactly the the verbatim words that we should use but how David expresses things how Jonah and Jeremiah and Jesus all express their heart in prayer like this we can do the same thing you do not have to stress about coming up with big fancy words God hears you pray his word back to him and now how does that happen This is the last thing I'll say This happens by knowing the word. There is an inseparable connection between prayer and the scriptures. You cannot pray the Bible back to God in a moment of need unless you know the Bible. So if we are going to be the kind of church that says, God, I trust you. My times are in your hands. Lead me wherever you want. I have confidence in you. We have to know that from the Bible. So my encouragement is not just to work on the pattern of prayer. My encouragement is to know the word. Hide the word of God in your heart. Study the word of God. Meditate on the word of God. Do it individually. Do it in groups. We do it corporately on Sundays. And may God be pleased to make us a kind of church that trusts in him always. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this psalm. And thank you, Lord, for the examples that we read. It is so many times we feel weak and inadequate. Oftentimes we don't really know what to pray as we're confronted with situations that are very difficult or unknown and we don't know what the future will bring. But I thank you that you have left us instruction in your word. That we can cry out to you using the same kind of language that your people have used for thousands of years. And God, I pray that you would make us more bold, more confident, more trusting in you because you have worked goodness for us. You rescue your people. You empower us by your spirit. You've worked everything for our good. And so help us to trust in you more. Lord, our times are in your hands. Would we be freed from the fear of the unknown and simply take the next step that you lead us to, knowing that you care for us, you love us, you've given your son for your people. And so, Father, even now we get to come to the table and remember the sacrifice of Jesus that makes all of this possible. So remind us of your goodness and of your faithfulness. And we commit ourselves to you in Jesus' name, amen.